much. Trevor and Jason both said we're glad everybody's here, and I hope that you'll be benefited by our study of the morning. We're going to wrap up our study in the book of the books, I guess I should say, of Thessalonians this morning. Um, I hope you've enjoyed those studies. The book's been a tremendous blessing to me, and I've I've enjoyed digging into it. I'm kind of bittersweet on it. I, I wanted to keep going, but I'm also ready to move on to something else. But we're going to wrap that up this morning, and I and I hope that you're benefited as we close out the study. He um, last couple of times that I've spoke, we didn't do a review of what we had talked about previously just because of the sheer amount of content uh, that we had concerning the second coming and what we did in those studies. And so I want to quickly this morning run back through the things that we've talked about because I think as Paul concludes his letter specifically in First Thessalonians, that the summary of those things is important to recall what he's talked about previously. And so I want to quickly review that this morning and then we'll dive into the Really, the latter half of chapter 5 is where we're going to spend our time this morning, verse 12 through the end of the chapter. If you want to follow along in the Bible, um, we're going to have all the scriptures on the board as well. But you might recall back, the, as he began this book, we talked about this congregation, how Paul, on his second missionary journey, was traveling through what's now modern-day Greece, and he came across this town, Thessalonica, and established a congregation there. And they became what we've been referring to as a model congregation. And those are my words. Those aren't the, the scripture's words, but... Um, that's a word that I chose specifically with the motive of calling out the fact that they were doing some things pretty well, but not painting a picture of a perfect congregation, because they were certainly weren't a perfect congregation, but in many ways they were a model congregation. And you might remember how he talked about their faith and how he said it went out from everywhere in Macedonia. So the things that they were doing, nobody even he didn't even need to go talk about it because their actions were speaking louder than their words. And all of the all of that area knew about this congregation. And we talked about that real-world faith that they had, how that they were suffering intense persecution from the Jews there in Thessalonica, so much so that as Paul and his compatriots went through there, they were run out of town, physically run out of town. And um, you remember all the stuff that happened at the house of Jason, and they drug them out into the streets looking for Paul. And uh, Paul didn't get to make his return visit to Thessalonica like he desired to and like he talked about in many of these letters. The second part, we talked about Christian influence and what, what it means to be a Christian influencer. And not only the fact that we are Christian influencers, but the fact that we should desire to be Christian influencers. That really, at the end of the day, spreading the gospel can't be done without influence. And if you look around the society that we live in, whether you're talking about religion or spreading the gospel, or if you're just talking about business and social interaction, influence is required in almost all situations. And he said, I want you to imitate me because we set an example that was worthy of imitation. And he wasn't building himself up, but he said, our conduct was such that you should be able to imitate that. And they did that. And that was part of why they became a model congregation. Part three, we talked about the idea of continuous improvement. I mentioned that I had a view in my life that there was some point in life where you just kind of get there as a Christian. Wherever there is, you do all the things that you need to do and you learn all the things you need to learn. And at some point, you're there. And how as I, get, as I get older, I realize that it couldn't be further from the truth, that there is no there. And that the struggle of a Christian is a daily struggle. We all have the same struggle on a day-to-day basis. And it's an idea of continuous improvement. Maybe I'm two steps forward at somewhere, I'm going to take a step back. And then maybe I can take two steps forward again. And then over the course of a lifetime, that becomes a person that's complete in God's sight, that we push toward a completeness in God's sight. 
Part number four, we talked about pleasing God. There was a lot of con- uh, content in that chapter about sexual immorality, but the idea of what it means to please God and how he said you ought to walk and to please God. How we should behave, and that involved obe- obedience to God's commands. Listening to the words that he teaches us and following those commands. We talked a lot about self-control in that chapter. The idea of how we should bridle our own passions and our own lusts and get control over those things. And that's an important thing for a Christian to do. And he talked a lot about brotherly love and how the congregation there was doing a pretty good job of that. If you remember, he told them concerning brotherly love, I have no need to write to you because you're doing a good job. But do so more and more. The things that you're doing, keep it up because that stuff can go by the wayside. And in doing that, we can please God. And then we spend a lot of time concerning the second coming. You remember, he initiated this conversation with them because of their fear about some of those that had died. And they had misinformation about what the second coming looked like and when the Lord returns, what that event looks like. And he said, we don't, don't, don't worry about those people that have died. We don't grieve like others grieve because we have hope. And we have hope in his coming. And there's hope in his coming, but we got to be prepared for it as well. And remember the warnings that he gave them concerning his coming. But he said, you, can, you who are troubled can rest in that coming. You've been persecuted. You're still suffering it. You're dealing with all these various things. You can rest knowing that he's coming back, and you're going to have rest from this labor. But to those who haven't, there's a warning. And that second coming is going to happen. And then we discussed also the idea that really he was setting them up for this conversation on the second coming in everything that he was talking to them about. And he wove it in. Everything he said to them, all of it, was with this forward-thinking view that the Lord's returning. All of these ways that I'm telling you to behave, all these things that I'm telling you to do, the way you should act, the way you should interact with people, the things you should talk about, the things you should fill your life with, is with an eye on the fact that he's coming back and the encouragement that he's doing so. And so as we move into this final part of chapter 5, he starts to conclude his thoughts here with these people. And I've uh, stewed on this a little bit because this is really kind of a, it, it really is a conclusion to this first letter. And those of us who do teaching, we talk about a lot the idea of an, the importance of a, of a decent conclusion and a proper conclusion. You can have a, build a really well thought out and well designed message and, and, and you can wreck it with your conclusion and you know, we're not here for all of the mechanics of how to write and all that kind of stuff. That's not our goal. But the truth is, people are people. And you, the way that you end a message has an impact on people. And you can, you can tug on the heartstrings of people, and you can try to motivate, and you can try to encourage, and you can either ruin that or you can support that with your conclusion. And I think as Paul is writing his conclusion to this letter, that's exactly what he does. And as I was thinking about this, I kind of wish... I could get into the mindset of Paul. You know, we, we, pull these, we pull these passages out and we read about them and we, we try to find verses that make sense to us or that we can put on our eye black before a football game. And we forget that he's writing a letter to a group of Christians here that are seriously being persecuted. And he's trying to encourage them and build them up and keep their faith up and keep their eye on the prize. And so as we think about this concluding, his concluding remarks this morning, keep that in mind. You know, what's going through his mind? Is it going through his mind that he's never going to see them again? I don't, I don't guess we actually have a record that he did, never did or didn't, but certainly by his first and second th- uh, letter here to the Thessalonians, it appears that he never got to see them in person again. 
But was that on his mind? Was he thinking he was about to die pretty soon? And, and I think those lines of thinking are important because it lets us realize that the things that he's talking about here are not, there's value in those. If you were going to write a final message to somebody, somebody you loved or cared about or another Christian or another congregation, you wouldn't waste time on the things that aren't important. You're going to spend your time saying the things. If you had an opportunity to give a final message to somebody, you're going to use that to say the important things. And this final part of this chapter is really, I've kind of been joking with some of the guys that this is kind of the lightning round. So I was struggling with how to deal with it because he just goes into a list of stuff that they need to be doing. And I was joking about it being the lightning round because it feels like he's just saying, I've got so much I want to say to you, and I've got so little time, and I don't know if I'm going to see you again, and I want to get all this out. And so think about that as we read this this morning and how important some of these things are to him. I, I, I suppose there, that, that he said only what he thought he needed to in terms of importance and value to this congregation that he was addressing. To start, um, I want to kind of actually go to the end, toward the end of the chapter. There's a couple of verses after this. But in verse number 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think really that this could, we could label this as kind of the thesis statement for both of the letters to the Thessalonians. At the end of the day, he's... Everything he said to them has been in the context of what you can do to be right in the sight of God, what you can do to look like a congregation that's doing the things that God has asked you to, behaving the way that he's asked you to, taking care of the gospel the way he's asked you to, interacting with one another and loving one another the way he's asked you to. And that's his prayer for them, is that God would sanctify them completely, not just sanctify them, but sanctify them completely. And again with an eye on his coming. And that's the thesis of this letter. Now, that word sanctify is a word that we see a lot in the Scriptures, but we don't use a lot in our everyday vocabulary. Um, if you're into following and tracking down all the Greek and all that stuff, there it is, the Strong's number for that word. To me, the part of this definition that kind of sticks out is this number two. You know, you read this other stuff, and he kind of uses the word to define the word, and everybody always says you can't do that, and you don't understand what the word means. That's not helpful anyway. But when you think about in the context of the passage we're reading, but in the context of mostly where sanctified Jews, that's what makes sense to me. He calls it separating from the profane things and giving it to God and dedicating it to God. And that's really what we mean when we say sanctified. A lot of times we kind of uh, shortcut the definition. We just say that means set apart. And I think that's an okay abbreviated definition for that. It means when you become a Christian, God sets you apart from the things of this world. And really, that's what we're talking about when we say the profane things. We're talking about a worldly mindset. We're getting rid of that worldly mindset, and we're moving on to a godly mindset. And his prayer for them is that they were sanctified completely. And so he gives them a list of things that help accomplish that in his conclusion. Certainly, he's been talking about that throughout the whole letter. But this is the Christian life in a nutshell. This is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to accomplish in everything that we do. We're trying to leave the old man behind, all of the things that we used to do, all the things that we struggle with, all the things we want to do and we know we shouldn't do. We're trying to leave those behind, and we're trying to move on, and we're trying to put them away and dedicate ourselves to, 
to God and to godliness. And that's the Christian life in a nutshell. The interesting thing about this is he says, you don't sanctify yourselves. It's not something you achieve. You do all these things and you achieve sanctification. He sanctifies us through the blood of his son. And it's a gift and it's set apart and it's something that we're entrusted with. But I like the fact that he says you sh- he prays for complete sanctification. There's kind of levels to it. It's kind of that continuous improvement idea. And it's not something that we should take for granted. But his goal for the church here was that they were set apart from the worldly things that they dealt, dealt with. And you think about it in, the, in their minds, the context of the Thessalonians and the struggles that they had, the challenge that they had with the Jews and carrying on doing the things that they were doing in the face of all those Jews that were still after them. It was a challenge for them. Let's remember that as a people. Let's remember that as a congregation, that that's the challenge, that that's the goal is for us to be set apart, that we should be different, that we should be willing to dedicate ourselves to God. With that in mind, let's move back to verse number 12. He's just coming out of the discussion uh, about the second coming and what that looks like and the benefits of that for the Christian, the challenges of that for the non-Christian when he moves into this wrapping up of the letter. So in verse number 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. This, This passage feels a little bit out of place at first when you read it. And I got to thinking a lot about this. Like, why, why did he throw this in here? Because you you, he's coming straight out of the conversation about the second coming. In the context of this lightning round or this laundry list of stuff, maybe it doesn't seem quite as out of place, but the more I got to thinking about this, that I'm convinced that he knows the importance of this for them maintaining that, I'm going to say status for lack of a better word, but Maintaining that status as a model congregation. He wanted them to keep it up, and he knew the value in leadership, the value of leadership in doing that. And that was his encouragement to them, was you need to esteem leaders highly. And I want to ask you this morning, how do you feel about leadership? Do you do this? This is not a suggestion. This is a command. And frankly, this should be an easy command for us. If we're committed to the body, if we're committed to our congregation, and you may be here a visitor today, think about your congregation, your home congregation, or if you don't have a home congregation, I want you to know how important this is to us, that we value leadership in our congregation, that we value what that means to a congregation, and we value the necessity of it in the congregation growing and becoming stronger with one another and becoming stronger in the sight of God. And it's a burden. There's a burden in leadership. And I think that's why the command to esteem them highly. You know, we think about the leadership process. We went through that a couple years back. We've gone through it several times over the past decade or a little more than that. And how we select them. You know, I think many times uh, in the church and in society, our view of leadership gets a little bit skewed. You know, we think you know, it ends up being the smartest people around us, the people with the best ideas, maybe in the world, and the people with the most money, you know, whatever the case may be. But even, even just within the walls of the church, what makes the best leader? Is it the best preacher? Is it the people with the best ideas about what the church should do and what it should be? And it's not. If, you, if we look at the qualifications, those are not the qualifications. A leader should be able to teach, but he doesn't have to be the smartest. He doesn't have to have the highest IQ. He doesn't have to be the best. He doesn't have to have the best ideas. And in fact, I would argue that many times the opposite is true. Good leaders are humble, 
and inclusive. They're willing to look at the input of others. They're willing to consider the input of others. Not only are they willing to, they desire to because they know their strength in diversity. They know their strength in people working together. There's safety in numbers. And they see things. They hear things that we don't hear when we're not in that position. They deal with situations that are very difficult for all the parties involved. Sometimes that's sinful behavior. Sometimes that's just the challenges of life, the things that people are going to. And I want to ask you this morning how you feel about our leaders, especially members of our congregation. I want to challenge you with how you feel about our leaders. How do you view our leaders? Do you esteem them highly in love? Because if you don't, you're violating a commandment of God. And it's an important factor for the strength of a congregation that we esteem our leaders highly in love. Not because they're better than us, not because they're better than anyone in the audience, but because they were chosen to do a work and willing to take that on And the congregation said we were willing to follow that. And we all know what the end goal is. It's an important work, but it's a burden. It's a burdensome work. And we should value that. We should pray for them. And we should esteem them highly because of that. And I think he realized the importance of that, thinking about the Thessalonians. We know the congregation at that point couldn't have been months old at best probably not even a year old at that point. I mean, if he established it, it was only a few months since he had been there. I don't know what their leadership situation looked like. I know that Paul had a desire to ordain elders in every city, in every congregation that he established. He desired strong leadership. It was clearly important to him, but it was on his mind. And I think he knew the value in that, in that congregation remaining strong. He has a follow-up comment right there at the end of that section, and I don't believe that's misplaced in any way or random in its timing, but he says, be at peace among yourselves. And if you think about uh, esteeming our leadership highly, the single most important thing that we can do to help in that is to be at peace among ourselves, not being divisive, not quarreling, not fighting, not gossiping, all the things you can say that would lead to that are the single biggest thing we can do to derail how we esteem our leadership. And that's easy for me to say. I haven't been in that position. But I can tell you through the Scriptures and observing and doing leadership stuff outside of, of the walls of the church, the thing, human nature is human nature. And he's clear about how he feels about that. Be at peace among yourself. Don't be decisive. Personally this morning, you don't be a divisive person. Don't be divisive. Don't want to tear people apart. Don't want to cause rifts in the church, don't want to cause issues that are hard to deal with, that force them to deal with something that they shouldn't have to deal with. Don't be a problem. Leaders, Our leaders are, at the end of the day here, they're working for God, number one, and they're working for each of you, number two. They're not doing this for themselves, trust me. They would not take that position if it was just for self-gain. There's a lot of gratification in seeing growth of a congregation and things going good and all that kind of stuff, but it's not a position you take to get rich or famous. It's a challenge. It's a burden. There's a burden of leadership, and I hope that you will consider your view of our leadership this morning and be willing to look at it the way he's encouraged us to. Now he kind of, now is when he really kind of moves in kind of to the lightning round. He really starts this section. He says, and we in verse number 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. When I started out dealing with this, I was like, well, what do you do? Do you take each one of these little quick statements that he makes and 
make that a point in a sermon, and I realize there's too many. You can't do that. So try to figure out what's, what's his message here. And I think in this verse, his message is you got to help other people. And that's kind of what the church is all about, helping other people. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. And why does, why does he do this? Because many times we don't. Many times we think about self. Where am I at? What do I need? What do I want? And we lose sight of the needs of others. We lose sight of people that are struggling with something. We lose sight of people that are ha- have a weakness about something. You look at this list and just ask yourself, how well are you doing these things? You know, I look at some of them, I'm like, well, I do okay on that from time to time. Do you have patience with them all? Ask my family how patient of a man I am. It's pretty challenging at times. But we need to help others. And I think, you think about him closing up this letter, he's concerned about that. Help others out. Help the weak. Now, the word idle, this admonishing the idle here, King James words that um, as unruly. And it's interesting because if you define it, if we looked up the Strong's on that, it, it says unruly as well. He, the, the one passage in 2 Thessalonians that we have not covered, we're going to read here in just a sec, um, he addresses this idea of idleness. So when I, when I was digging into it, it's like, okay, well, he's talking about being unruly. Exhort the unruly is, I think, the way the King James words it. So, you know, disorderly, unruly, that kind of a definition around it. So people that are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, help them get back in line, essentially. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he talks about this kind of at length here. And I want to read it, A, because I'm trying to wrap this up, and I don't want to miss a good chunk of content out of 2 Thessalonians but B, because it fits in with what he's encouraging them not to do. And it's interesting because when you read the context of this, the word idle kind of fits, even though by definition it's more unruly. But listen to how he talks about this and how he kind of defines it with his context here. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle, When we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, and to own their own living. The Christian mindset about how we view working is one that gets to work. That's the way God expects a Christian to view that. He, he doesn't expect this idea of idleness. And idle, as we think about it, is somebody that's not in motion, right? It's somebody that's still not working. And he talks about it, the danger of that. You know, they're not working, so they're being a busybody. Well, what do you do if you don't have anything else to do? Well, you don't mind your own business. You worry about other people's lives. You worry about what they're doing. You stick your nose into stuff that's none of your business. When you ought to be out there working is what he's saying. And I think this is, obviously, he's telling them this as well, so there was some challenge with it there. He said, we hear there's some of you that walk in idleness, not willing to do it, but we live in a society where this is prevalent. This is very much applicable for us today. People want handouts. They don't want to work for stuff. They want it given to them. They want to get rich quick, all of that stuff. And he's saying, get to work. Providing for your family is nobody's responsibility but yours. And I don't know that we have a problem with that in the church, but 
it's a concern that we should watch for. And certainly we probably all get lazy from time to time, but we should have a mindset of, of not wanting to be idle. That's what he's encouraging here. There's value in hard work. And he said, if you remember back, we had a little discussion about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, he said, he told them there, he said, go work, he, work with your hands. Go actually work with your hands. He said the reason for that is so that you can walk properly and that outsiders would have a good example for you. You can walk properly before outsiders, and you're not, not dependent on anyone. So everything has a reason. He's not just saying don't be lazy for the sake of not being lazy. It sets an example. It creates a, a visible influence in the lives of others. And that's why I wanted to review everything we talked about before, because he keeps hitting on this stuff over and over again, the influence you have, how you ought to imitate. We gave you an example to imitate. We didn't even want to... We wouldn't even sit down and have a meal with you without paying for it because we wanted to set an example. We didn't want anybody saying, you're only doing this because you get a free ride out of it or only doing it to get paid. We're doing it for the gospel's sake, and we want you to be an example in that. Work hard, and let's be a congregation that has that mindset, willing to work and get after it. Provide for our families, set a good example in the communities that we work and live in. Get to work for the church. Get to work doing the things that we're supposed to do for God. As he continues this kind of lightning round list here, he kind of shifts into more kind of some overall, instead of helping others kind of stuff, it's more of a kind of what should you do as a Christian. In chapter 5, in verse number 15, <coughs> he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. It's like, what do you do with that? It's like a hundred things he says you got to do. And I, I think at the end of the day, he's saying, do, the, do what you know is right. We've taught you. You know right from wrong. If you need a reminder, here's the list. Here's the things that you should be doing. Now just do them. Do what is right. And I think it's such a valuable reminder. Be good to people. Be rejoicing in your attitude. What do you, you have the gift of God. What do you have to be sad about? Doesn't mean you're not going to be frustrated. Trevor talked a lot about finding joy a while back. If we can't find joy in the, fact of, well, the facts of what we've been given from God, we, we've got a lot of problems. Be a rejoicing kind of people. Don't neglect your prayer life. Remember to pray. You know, it's almost like if you, if you just made this list and hung it on your wall, and every morning when you jumped out of bed, you said, I'm going to do these things today. That's a pretty good roadmap for how to be a good Christian. Do these things every single day, and you're going to be a pretty good Christian in God's sight. And I'm not saying do that so you can get the pat on the back. I'm just saying you do these things, you're doing what God wants you to do. Don't neglect your prayer life. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise teaching. Test it. Test it against the Word. And then hold on to what's right. When you find something that's right, hold on to it. Do what you're supposed to do. Abstain from every form of evil. How, how much better of a Christian would we be if we just woke up and did these things every single day? How much better of a Christian would I be if I woke up and do these things every single day? I'm convinced that we would all be better if we did this. And I think that's what he's doing here. And I don't know if he meant it to be a checklist. You know, I don't, I don't know if he meant it if it was... Um, something that was, you know, he's just, like I said earlier, just spewing out everything he can get in, think to get in for them. 
but he pretty well covered all his bases. He pretty well covered everything he needed to cover to get to remind them, to keep them good. If, if he's looking at them as a model congregation and he's saying, you do these things, you're going to be holding on. You're going to remain fast. You're going to have good leadership. You're going to do what I said to do. And I think we would all be better if we keep it up. Now we're back to verse number 23 that we opened with. So you do all these things, and he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know if we're sanctified or set apart or if we've, as we said by definition, if we've left the profane things and dedicated to God? How do we know if we're there? Well, he just wrote an entire letter that told you how. And he just wrote a pretty good conclusion that told you how. Do these things. When you make the decision to be a Christian, don't take it lightly. Know that God sets you apart from the world when you're obedient to his gospel. And find the things that you're supposed to be doing to do differently, to be different from the world. How would the world identify you differently? It's doing all these things we've talked about. He was really good, I think, Paul, about throwing in little nuggets of motivation and um, encouragement. You know, he would, sometimes he would have a challenging message for a congregation, not so much here in Thessalonians. Although he gave them a, you know, a lot of commands, a lot of instruction, but I think what he was really good at was weaving in the motivation, and he finishes no differently here. In verse number 24, he says, He who called you is faithful, and he will surely do it. And I think the lesson there is we can't forget the promises of God. And you think about the daily life of a Christian and how some days you get up and it's easier than others. Some days it's a battle. You know, some days I think we feel like Paul when he said, you know, the things that I know I should be doing, I'm not doing. I'm doing the things you tell me not to do. And it's always just this war against myself. There's days like that. There's days that it's a battle. And I think the message is we got to remember the promises of God because he's faithful and he will surely do it. And as he wrote these various letters, he said that to the churches. He will surely do it. That means the days that we don't want to esteem our leaders highly because of the work they've chosen, remember the promises of God. And the days that we don't want to help others the way he's asked us to, we need to remember the promises of God. And the, way, the days that we're not doing a good job of doing what we know we should be doing. We need to remember the promises of God. Think about, he wrote again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. As he's writing that stretch of text to them talking about the evil one, he's talking a lot about the second coming through that section as well. He reminds him of the faithfulness of God. And you think about, the things that we're going through, I wonder if it's as important to us, the promises of God, do they mean the same to us that they mean to a congregation that was facing physical persecution from a group of Jews that were running them out of town, wanting to burn them down every chance they could get? The promises of God meant something to those people. And I suspect without the promises of God, why do you do everything else? What's the value or motivation in doing all this other stuff if you don't have that? And I think there's times we forget about that. We give in to the tough and challenging things because we lose sight of that. We forget the end. We forget the, the reward. We forget it. Listen to what he said in uh, his letter to the Philippians. I thank my God in all, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, 
all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Promises of God, and what does he remind them of? It's com- there's going to be a day. It's coming. He's coming back. His letter to the Corinthians, very similar language. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What else do we need? What else do we need to have the strength and the courage to remain faithful? But knowing that God's faithful in that. He's faithful in his promises. He's going to keep them. He will surely do it, is what he said. Interestingly enough to me that as he wrote to the Corinthians and the Philippians, he began his letter with this language. To the Thessalonians, he ended it. I don't know if there's a message in that. He, in some cases, had harder criticisms and challenges for those groups, at least the Corinthians, than he did the Thessalonians. But either way, he reminded all these people about the promises of God. And maybe we don't talk about that enough. Maybe we don't talk about that and remind ourselves about those promises. We should never forget the faithfulness of God. Those promises are the rock that will keep us grounded individually. They're the rock that will keep a congregation grounded and keep us wanting to do the things that he's challenged a congregation with. I don't have it on the board, but he finishes this chapter with a challenge to them that this letter needs to be read to everybody. Read this to the whole congregation. This was a a letter to a congregation. It was a letter of unity. It was a letter of challenge to keep up the things they were doing good, to improve on the things that they could improve, to love each other, to not be divisive, to follow leadership. And that's a model congregation. And remember the ultimate promise. He talked about it a lot in this book. We talked a lot about it in our conversations about the second coming. These people were challenged with that. You know, they were challenged with, the peop- with those of their number that had already died. They didn't know what to think about what it meant for them. There was apparently some misinformation about what the second coming looked like in some cases that it had already happened. And he, so he had, to, he had to squash all that stuff and, and tell them what it really meant. But he said, those that are dead, they get to rise first. When he comes back, they're the first ones that get to meet him. And then anyone that's left alive gets to meet him in the air and get to be with him forever. That's the promise of God. We get to be with him forever. And as we look at the challenges of life and all these things that we have to go through, we can't lose sight of that. It makes it too tough. And all the things that he's asked us to do are bearable in the context of his promises. And I hope you can see that this morning. I hope... You've enjoyed this study. This book's been tremendously helpful to me. I've enjoyed digging in and spending a lot of time in it. I think it's just a really interesting congregation. I think there's a challenge to us to imitate them where we find that they're doing the things right, just like Paul challenged them to do, and like we talked about when we were talking about imitation. Let's try to do that. Let's try to imitate them. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I was talking to one of the kids about that statement the other day. They were talking about somebody copying somebody. I don't even remember what we were talking about now. Well, they just copied so-and-so. It's like, everybody copies so-and-so. Very few people invent stuff, invent ideas or things or concepts or whatever. Like, everybody copies. That's how you do it. If, some, if something works, you copy it. That's how things are supposed to work. 
We look at a model congregation, let's model ourselves after them where they're doing things right. Let's strive to be like them. Let's, let's be the kind of congregation where if they were to write a letter to us, he would say, concerning brotherly love, I don't have any need to write to you because you're doing a good job. Do we love each other that way? Jason talked about how they're hearing in all their elder visits, people want more out of relationships. So let's do that. Let's invest in those. Let's spend time with each other. Build each other up and encourage one another. And that was his message to the Thessalonians. Let's spend every day with a view that the Lord's coming back. If anything, that stuck out to me as clearly as can be as I studied this book, that he hammered that in over and over, that that day is coming. And that to the Christian, you can take comfort in that day. There's value in knowing that day is coming because you're going to encounter troubles in this life. You're going to encounter difficult situations. You're going to be frustrated. You may be depressed. You may be dealing with issues that you think are insurmountable. But there's a day coming that you're going to have rest from your labors. And you should be able to take comfort in that. To you who are troubled, rest. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus returns. Because there will be vengeance. In their case, there was a group of people that were causing them a lot of grief. And he's telling them that their their day is coming. And I don't think Paul was saying that like we think about winning a game or wanting to beat down an opponent or win a war or whatever, however you want to look at that. I don't think he's saying it in that, in that kind of attitude or that manner. He's not, he's not glad for them. He said in other places, I wish that you were all as I am, you know, in terms of salvation. He clearly wanted people to be saved. But the truth is there's a day coming that there will be a reckoning. And he said, if you're troubled now and you're a Christian, you find rest in that. But he's returning in flaming fire, and he's going to take vengeance on those that don't know God and that don't obey his gospel. And they're going to be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. And that was a a warning message as well. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope you'll consider these things. I hope you'll consider that there's a day that he will return and where your life is in relation to that. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are a Christian and you have a challenge with some of these things. Remember, he said we should help the weak, help those that are struggling, that we should lend a hand to people. And that's what we do when we offer an invitation. That's our goal. Our goal is it's not some mechanical thing where we're hoping somebody will walk down front and sit on an aisle and we say a prayer and move on. Our goal is that we can help people deal with problems, that we can help people overcome struggles, that we can be a shoulder for each other to lean on. And that's what we do when we offer. We kind of do it in a mechanical way just because of how we're set up. But when we offer that, that's the invitation we're offering. The invitation is Jesus. And that he can help you with problems. And that there's men and women that can be a help in that. And that's what we want to offer this morning. If you have any need that the church can help you with, or if you need to obey the gospel, we'd invite you to come as we sing this invitation song.